0: We can start, we are recording... I can see, we've recorded five minutes of complete rubbish at the moment. No change there then. (laughs) Hello and welcome again to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. And although we're the reverse of a strictly topical podcast, we're going to talk this week about the implications of something that happened recently... Our listeners will no doubt recall the behaviour of Jurgen Klopp during Liverpool's 4-3 victory over Spurs. I've always been something of a Klopp fan, I have to confess. I think he gets Liverpool and he cares about the city compared to, say, Guardiola, who's never given a tinker's cuss about Manchester. But that's by the bye. But I was sad to say that I was actually really upset in a kind of Tunbridge Wells Colonel sort of a way by Klopp's behaviour in a match against Spurs, because at one point, after a refereeing decision he presumably disagreed with, he was discovered by the camera lying full length on his stomach on the ground. Now, I can't remember whether or not he was beating his fists, but the image of an enraged toddler was clear enough. And presumably this infantile behaviour is excused because it demonstrates passion. (laughs) So we were thinking passion in football, good or evil, because of course. Passion is frequently a force for good, and the fundamental reason that we all care about the game. I'm joined this week, as ever, by Paddy Barclay and by John Holmes, and together we have a pretty long lifetime of experience with passion. We're all passionate about the game, one way or another, and I'm surprised myself at being so appalled at Mm. Klopp's behaviour. John, did you feel a similar sense of disappointment with Klopp's behaviour?
1: Yes. I mean, as you say, there's a lot to admire about Jürgen Klopp. You're right. He does get the town and so on in a way that actually no manager has since Shankly. But one would look back and say, Bill shankley would he have ever done that? He was a notorious bad loser. And on one occasion, having lost to the Germans, was apparently hurt running up and down the corridor saying we won the fucking war. <laughs> but I don't think on the touchline. I ever saw behaviour from Shankly like that. And certainly you look back to the great managers of that era, Shankly, Bob Paisley, Matt Busby, Stan Cullis, Harry Catterick, Howard Kendall, these people would never have behaved like that. And Brian Clough, certainly, whatever else he did on the touchline, indeed on one famous occasion, of course, he ran on the pitch and punched a fan but I think our old friend alcohol had something to do with that which no one was prepared actually to call out at the time so that's discredit to your profession Paddy but we can now call it out because that was the booze that had got to him and so as it did it is I think a symptom of the increasing pressure and stress that managers are under but also the the relationship between the chairman and the manager? Because clearly in those days, had Shankly behaved like Klopp, I have no doubt that John Smith and Peter Robinson would have taken him to one side and said, "Billy, you can't behave like that. Or am I wrong?
2: No, you're not. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you think you could not only talk about Shankly in terms of passion, he, as much as any football manager that's ever existed, embodied that. Indeed, I agree with your tribute to Klopp. And I've said a million times that Klopp has reinvented many of the great characteristics of Shankly. And that's why he's arguably the best Liverpool manager since the Shankly period. But I completely agree with you about his behaviour a couple of months ago in that game that Colin was talking about. It was awful. And actually, his passion does overblow at times. On the other hand, I love the way he reacts with the crowd and recognises their passion. And pumps his chest at the end of games that they've won, and so on. That relationship with the crowd is good passion. I like that. But the kind of passion that, if we're talking about managers now, the panjandrum's, you know, running around the touchline trying to fool the crowd, you know, that they care as much as them. Antonio Conte is the best example of it. Doesn't fool anybody, and so demonstrative is he on the touchline that you genuinely wonder if he's doing his job. Because you can't be posing and posturing like an actor for 90 minutes and attending to the needs of your team. And I'll give you a very good example of the latter, of proper management. And it's actually the manager of the England women's team, Miss Wiegman. She's a proper manager because as somebody pointed out to me, they showed me this, England had fallen behind in a game. And instead of going, ah, showing passion. And we're talking about inverted commerce passion. We're not talking about real passion. We've all got it. Everyone's got it. That's easy. But the inverted commerce passion, in other words, demonstrativeness, she doesn't do that. Because what her team needed at that moment of falling behind was quiet advice, a touch on the tiller. That was what the team needed. Now, if Miss Wiegman had been looking after her own image... She'd have kicked a water bottle. But oh, no, she was a proper manager. She made a couple of tweaks. Her face was impassive. What message did that give the team? We're going to win 2-1. I'm not worried because I have faith
0: in you. It does bring back memories of Sir Alf Ramsey as well. Because what I remember about Alf was two things in that World Cup final 66. One was the moment when Jeff Hurst's final goal went in, him saying to Harold Shepperson, sit down, Harold, I can't see. Yeah. And the other thing was when you saw him at the end of the Argentina game, John's first game at Wembley watching England, there was the moment where he's stopping George Cohen from exchanging shirts with the Argentinian. And he's doing it in a very aggressive way by pulling up the shirt, if you remember, so the sleeve gets extraordinarily lengthened. But what is surprising and what is kind of disturbing about that image is you never saw Ramsey exhibit emotion on a pitch before. So seeing him really angry with the Argentinians and doing Mm. that physical act of tearing the shirt away Mm. kind of made you sit up, oh my God, we've upset the boss, we've upset the teacher, we've Mm. upset our parents.
1: The other expression of emotion and passion, if you like, that I will always remember, is David Pleat running onto the mm. pitch at the uh, Main Road, yes. Doing <laughs> an absolutely uh, the worst dance, Rusty. celebratory dance I've ever seen. Yes. But we all sympathised, empathised with that because no, it didn't. was a ge- no, moment didn't. of genuine passion. And I would compare one or two recent managers. Martin O'Neill was full of expressive behaviour on the touchline. He was more expressive than Clough, yet along with Clough, I don't think I can recall Martin ever actually going up to the referee or confronting the referee or anything like that. I think the trend altered with Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson perfected this. Alex Ferguson used it, pointing at the watch, all this sort of thing. He is an intimidating man, there is no doubt. But Ferguson used it on the referee very effectively. He
2: cared. He cared a lot but he played the referees. You're quite right. He was an intimidator. I wrote a biography of him, and it contained an opinion. And God, is there anything worse than people who quote their own opinions? But I'm going to do it. I said that he often bemoaned the decline in standards in society during his working lifetime without ever recognizing the part he played in it. (laughs) typical Ferguson, that, you know. But you see, the tapping of his watch was for a purpose. And if I might just draw a difference between Antonio Conte, say, and I probably am obsessed disliking the puffed up where he behaves. The difference between him and Ferguson it always struck me that every manager has an ego and must feed off his ego. But the trick is to hide it. Now, every time Ferguson tapped his watch, every time Ferguson snarled at a referee and you saw it on the telly. Your assumption was always that he was doing it for Man United. Oh, yeah. With Conte, the impression that comes over to me, and presumably to his players, is, oh, life is letting me down. You know, why does everything happen to me? Ferguson, every time he did it, you got the impression, the players got the impression he was doing it for the cause, not for himself personally. Inside, and I know this for a fact, he had as much insecurity as anybody on the planet. And he was driven by insecurity as much as his own undoubted
0: brilliance. It seems to me that when they started painting those stupid white boxes on the touchline, it became a theatre, it became a stage. Managers were therefore presented with a proscenium arch, as it were, in which they can demonstrate their alleged passion. And I think the Premier League is as culpable as the managers who exploit it. It's part
2: of the product.
0: Well, they're
1: actually, they're not even effective. Are they? Arteta spends all season outside his box mm. and occasionally you'll see the fourth official trying to put them back and he just ignores it. Nobody does actually very much about it. Paddy's right, you see, you've got to identify the difference between the self-serving, ego-driven behaviour of someone like Conte against someone like Ranieri, who actually really communicated with the crowd extraordinarily and has been sacked more places than I've had hot dinners. (laughs) And one has to question how much he actually had to do with Leicester winning the league. But he made the crowd smile with him. He definitely showed passion and everything else. I remember when we did win the league, after the Sunderland game, he almost broke down in tears. Recently, there's been Brendan Rogers, who shows virtually no emotion at all, yeah. and who the crowd never really came to terms with, despite the fact I think Brendan Rogers is undoubtedly a much better coach yeah. than Ranieri. So the relationship between the crowd and the manager, and this goes back to Shankly again, doesn't it? You know, there was a moment, somebody said to me at the time when Bill did finally decide to retire. He went round after they won the Cup and he was sort of bowing to the crowd. Mm -hmm. It was sort of paying homage to the fans there. There was that level of communication that some managers can get that is hard to express. The Mm -hmm. first bit, you know, I was thinking about managers and behaviour and passion and so on. Malcolm Allison, very passionate. The first time I saw a a manager get sent off was one Malcolm Allison for Plymouth Argyle (laughs) over some ludicrous minor (laughs) offence in about 1965 in a League Cup tie that mattered not a jot. But the one, Don Revy, Leeds versus West Brom, That was out of a sense of persecution. Revy was driven by this insecurity that people had it in for him, in for Leeds. And from that came, you know, these attempts to bribe the opposition and all that sort of thing. Mm. So one has to look beyond the initial bit. If you're looking at Klopp and you're looking at the Passion, you have to say to Klopp, who has since apologized, which is Mm. interesting. Is it the pressure on them, the stress on them now? But the stress has always been there, but not quite as much. I mean, you used to get player changes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now it's the crowd. Now you get managerial changes. <laughs> Chelsea changed managers all the time. Leeds change managers every time. Mm. It's just gone balmy. Mm. A majority of clubs have changed manager in the Premier League last season. Mm.
0: Some of them more than once. I'll just go back to Alison for a moment because that was the most fascinating relationship between Mercer and Allison. The reason it worked so well is that Mercer was exactly the reverse of, of Allison. You had all that passion, overt passion from Allison, which in, enthused the players and enthused the crowd. But you had this smiley, jokey character who clearly had a wider, more Olympian view of, of what had just happened. That's how he came over to the crowd. So we loved them both, which is why the year I spent well, the pre-season training time I spent with the club, the two have fallen out. It was the most fantastically awkward moment where Mercer thought I was a spy for Alison and Alison thought I was a spy for Mercer. It was a horrible situation to be in. It really was, but that was the problem, as I loved them both. It was like mummy and daddy falling out. And that's exactly how the players felt.
1: Colin Schindler, double agent.
0: <laughs> but Paddy, what do you feel about the box on the touchline? If I had my way
2: my box would be painted in the second tier of the stand and managers would do the job properly, by which I mean would prepare the team through the week, would give them their final instructions in the dressing room at five to three and would then watch the bloody match so that they were then able to make adjustments at half time. Instead, they're doing all that or they're expected to do that micromanagement all through the game talk about ferguson he was the last of the era in that his final great captain i suppose would be roy Keane, who was his manager for that 90 minutes any tweaking that needed to be done could be done by roy Keane. whereas now you get the impression and i'm not saying guardiola's not a great manager but he's different in style because he's micromanaging during the game often the players run to him and he gives them a message you know, more or less every 10 minutes. And footballers are no longer self starters. I mean, they used to say a good team needs between three and five great players because they would run the game. You know, great players in terms of leaders. Now, often great teams don't have any leaders.
0: Manchester City being a classic example. I don't know who the captain is. I don't see anybody on that pitch with authority. No. And yet they're the best. Go on, say it. You know, I'll say the best. In terms of the country, not by a mile. By a mile, yeah. yeah. Absolutely.
2: There
1: is an absence in a lot of teams, though. You used to be able to be able to pick out captains. Bobby Moore's influence on the 1966 team and so on. Tony Book's influence on that Manchester City side. Danny Blanchflower was a real captain. Dave Mackay then became a real captain at Derby. Now captains change round routinely. Mark Noble in recent times clearly was a leader for West Ham. Ward Prowse, James Ward Prowse, is a, is a leader in the way there aren't many others about. That's been because managers have largely taken over. The relationship of a manager and a captain was something, wasn't it? Whereas now you don't have that, seems to me, relationship any longer. The managers do everything.
2: It's perhaps a little telling that for. All this time, we've been talking about passion as if it was a function of the manager, when it should course. be the function of the player to enact the passion in the passion play that is the game. We used to work on the assumption that the players were our representatives on the park. John, Davy Gibson was representing you on the park. You worked on that assumption, didn't you?
1: Yes, I think he did, although he wasn't a captain, as you know.
2: No, no, it didn't have to be because he'd be one of that sprinkling of leaders. Of course, you'd have wingers who provided no leadership input at all. Nor, 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 nor would they be expected. Or, or defence, rather. <laughs> or defending, yeah. I'll bring
0: up an interesting point from my own you know, area of expertise, which is producing and directing in television and film. The director is involved on the day-to-day basis in every single scene. He's the coach. He's with the players. He's with the actors all the time. The best thing that a producer could do, and I learnt that to my cost quite early on in my career, the best thing a producer could do is stay away Mm. and not become pally Mm. with everybody. You're there to provide what they call the third eye. If you become as emotionally involved with all that passion, you have no ability to stand back and say, that scene needs to go. The director says, I was up at six o'clock in the morning with the cameraman on top of a telegraph pole filming that scene, that's got to stay. And that's the passion. My job is to say, it adds nothing to the story. It's going. Mercer and Allison again, it's got to be a combination of somebody having the ability to stand back and say, all very well, but I can see something that you can't because you're too close. Mm-hmm. And at the end of a game, this is then the final point I want to make about this, is how many times in cities losing years, of which there were many that I've experienced, that got to a situation in the 83rd minute where they were losing 2-1 and they suddenly started playing really well. As always happens with teams, you're 2-1 up, the team comes at you and you pull 11 men back in defence to defend, which means that you've got complete possession and you're going forward all the time. And I kept thinking to myself, well, why didn't they try this in the 23rd minute and not the 83rd minute where we're going to end up losing 2-1? The passion seems to come and go in that way.
1: You've made a very good point. Underrated to me is the relationship between managers and coaches. We've all heard this scenario where people said, it's not the manager, it's the coach. It was a particular one attributed to the situation at Arsenal when they won the double. Bertie Mead had been promoted from, I think, physio or whatever it had been. Don Howe was the coach. Don Howe was undoubtedly a brilliant coach and actually a lovely man. Mm -hmm. who got close to the players and got a lot of performances out of them and took them during the week. Bertie Mee, I can remember speaking to John Samuels and various other Arsenal players about this, they said Bertie Mee just came in at the end of the week, reminded them about what Arsenal stood for, how important this game was to the club and everything else. But there undoubtedly was Mm -hmm. more going on Mm -hmm. in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And Don Howe, when he became a manager was not successful, Mm. never successful as a manager. Very brief period at Arsenal where he did quite well. But by and large, I think everybody would agree Don Howe was not successful as a manager, Mm. but was successful as a coach. Mm. He was coached, let's not forget, when England got to the semi-final of the World Cup Mm. under Bobby Robson. The relationship between coach and manager, the relationship between Clough and Taylor, which I've talked about, the relationship... I've possibly mentioned this before as well, between Martin O'Neill and John Robertson and the coaches who took it during the week. Martin quite often spent all week just looking, watching them from his office. Clough often didn't see the players from one match till the following Friday Mm. when he suddenly came in and delivered a speech. Sometimes he would move on things, but... Whereas there are some managers who Mm. want to do absolutely everything. They Mm. do everything. And I think that's where it can run out. Ferguson is an interesting manager in that Ferguson was completely ruthless with his coaches. If they began to say, and there was a period where everybody said, oh, it's not Ferguson, it's Brian Kidd. Brian Kidd was another one who has not been successful as a manager, but has undoubtedly been successful as a coach. Colin Harvey and Howard Kendall is another one.
2: Yes. And can I just say in square brackets that Don Howe gave me an interest in philosophy, moral philosophy, because I was sitting next to him once on a plane and we were talking about dirty play in football. And he said, yeah, breaking a player's leg is reprehensible. He said, but it's okay to threaten to break a player's leg. To put him off a bit.
0: Well, that's always the first tackle, isn't it? I mean, the fullback goes in like crazy on the first tackle to make the point. Exactly.
2: I like to think he was using the drags, break a leg, metaphorically, or at least hyperbolically. Anyway, you need the coach and you need the man to stand back. The example I always think of is of Matt Busby and Jimmy Murphy. Jimmy Murphy was a great coach. He may well have been a great manager. He certainly had enough offers to leave Matt Busby and Manchester United and become a manager of big clubs at home and abroad and always turned them down. But he was undoubtedly a great coach in the sense that he would give players simple hints that would transform their careers. And Busby would stand back and take the broad view, be the strategist rather than the tactician, and Murphy would be the, the tactician. But I don't recall either of them being in a metaphorical white box or playing to the crowd, ever. Whereas you talk about passion, and again, we have to keep steering because we're from this era where it's all about managers. We have to keep steering ourselves back to players. Duncan Edwards, who was supposedly the best player that ever played for Manchester United, died at the tragically early age of 21 in the Munich crash. But as a teenager in the dressing room, he would give team talks and he would pound his fist in the dressing room just before they went out. We haven't come here for nothing. We haven't come here for nothing. He would show passion, but it would he would then go out onto the pitch and express it through shooting, through tackling, rather than through fist pumping, which brings us neatly onto the subject of Terry Butcher. Go on. You've obviously set yourself up. No. <laughs> I wonder if Terry Butcher was the first person who actually did brandish a fist. I think Brian Robson did a bit at Manchester United but actually did brand a fist to show a certain style of captaincy leadership.
0: Well, yes. Well, there's one thing brandishing a fist to all your mates saying, come on, lads, come on. Yeah. It's completely different, and I really don't like it, when players go to the crowd Ah. and go, come on, yes! yeah." I mean, they do it in cricket and in tennis, and I don't like it because it, Ah. it, it... well, I mean, that's a personal view. Yeah. and the, Which means this is the whole thing. I want to widen it into a discussion of wider social behavior. But, Paddy, what's your response to the players who wave the fist at the
2: crowd? Right. They don't need Okay, words, I don't. need to. Listen, I feel a bit shamefaced on this, Colin, because I, I never like to disagree with you. And it always makes me think I must have got something wrong. But <laughs> when I sit in the upper Haynes stand at Craven Cottage, and a player, a popular player such as Harry Wilson, comes over to take a corner. And if he shoves his arms up in the air to say, Yes, come on now, I join in. I join in that growl. So uh, I think we need John Holmes to come in here yeah, and, him, and yeah. show yeah. judicious arbitration.
1: <laughs> Who's right? I think, again, one has to examine the motives and so on. There have been one or two players over the years who people say about they're a good player to have on your side, but if you're on the opposition, you really hate them. Robbie Savage was undoubtedly such a player. Yes. I can remember him chasing down on an occasion we played, it might even have been Fulham in the League Cup, and we were losing two-one. Steve Walsh uncharacteristically made a couple of disastrous mistakes. And the crowd, you know, had virtually accepted who we were going to go down as one of those games. Mm. And Savage chased down a lost cause, as was the way he was, started waving his arms at the crowd. The crowd started to have a bit of a go. And lo and behold, they got a bit noisy. And lo and behold, Steve Walsh goes up the other end and scores two goals. And they won the League Cup that year. Bizarre behaviour. I don't mind as much. But I would question... These players who do that, what are they like away when the opposition fans are having a go at them? There have been players in the park, we've all used to have the experience, homer players, mm, you know, yeah, players that yeah. only played at home. Yeah. The one I vividly recall is a fellow called Steve Linex, who played to the crowd unashamedly, away from home. You frequently go, he's not raised a leg. They've frightened him. <laughs> if you watch a team over a period of time, I think you gain a pretty clear idea. And I think it's interesting, Paddy's enthusiasm now about Fulham, because for the first time, probably in his recent career, because he's been writing about it forever, Mm. he's watching one team, seeing that team develop. It's a living entity. One of the things I've found over the years exciting and interesting about watching and following the football club is to see the development of young players how they start off and you think they're really not going to make it and how they develop and improve. Linica was an obvious example. I can give you other ones that came in, looked really good to start with, and then they faded away. Mm. Now, there is actually a pleasure to see the development of players getting into their heads, Mm. in a sense, to see how they react with the crowd, which ones actually do do it away from home, which ones score important goals and not important goals. The comparison between Harry Kane and Vardy is one that a lot of people go on. Kane scores loads and loads of goals, but there is a case that a lot of his goals for England have been cheap goals. He's scored a lot of penalties. He's in claimed ones where it's gone off his ear against Panama. (laughs) What people have called cheap goals. I always felt that Vardy was one of those who scored really, really important goals many fewer hat-tricks and so on. Who are the people who score late goals and so on? These are expressions of character and passion and how much they care. Mm. And I think those are the bits that, as a fan of a club, you do get close to. I found the experience of being chairman, which I was for a short period of time, you have to sit at the front of the box. Everyone can see you. You're not supposed to jump in the air and all those sort of things. And as I recall, only once did I jump in the air when we scored against Forrest and Virtue confirmed promotion. But it is very much what is the emotion for, and that's where Paddy Mm. has got it right over Conte versus Ferguson versus Revy versus Clough versus Jock Wallace, who I recall, nobody could have been more passionate about football than Jock Wallace, who I recall when he first became... Leicester manager, he jumped up they scored a last minute winner against Luton and he smashed the perspex roof of the du- <laughs> of the dugout <laughs> Jock was an extraordinary character, but I never saw Jock try to intimidate the referee, intimidate a lot of players oh, yeah. he intimidated me he intimidated
2: me, I mean I was only yeah. a journalist, and he said I've killed before, and I'd kill again if you say the wrong <laughs> thing <laughs> he was a lovely guy by the way But he played up to his own image. Of course. I'll never forget, it was the longest piece I ever wrote because it wouldn't have happened today, but the the sub-editors decided to keep the swear words in. Very difficult to quote Jock
1: under those circumstances. Exactly.
2: I suppose they thought if we take the swear words out, there won't be a bunch of a piece. (laughs) So, So they left it in. It was the longest interview I ever
0: did. I need to defend myself slightly against Paddy's unprovoked and vicious ad hominem attack on me, yeah. which is to, to agree again with, with the difference between Ferguson and, and, and Conte, I mean, which I totally agree with. So when the players turn around and wave the fist at the crowd, mm. I keep thinking, it's not up to me, it's mm. up to you. You're ah, the bugger out there yeah, with the ball. Yeah, yeah. I can't do anything. Get on with it. And then the players complain about the crowd not showing enough passion when they're losing. I would like to put it on
2: record that I do agree with you on that. I've never seen oh. a player implore <laughs> the crowd to up the booing.
1: before we move away from jock wallace if you've not seen it there is on youtube an interview a guy called graham stewart as a young reporter he's now the producer of the graham norton show tried to have with jock wallace after a game at ibrox it is a classic in itself and if you've not seen it Look it up on YouTube. It's immensely funny. Yeah. Jock had various other things. As you, as you say, he was an extraordinary character. Lineker told me the story. Jock came to watch them when they were playing in the reserves. In those days, clubs had reserve sides and they played midweek. And quite often, the managers would be there watching them. And Leicester went in at half time, and up. Lineker scored both the goals. Went in feeling quite pleased with himself. Jock mm. marched in. Who they were all a bit terrified anyway. Grabbed him virtually by the throat, pinned him up against the wall and said, do not do this or that or whatever to him. Put him down, landed in a heap on the floor, <laughs> a quivering wreck. And the next morning he was called in to see the manager and he thought, oh, that's it. I'm finished. I've done. Jock had him in and just looked at him and said, last night, son. You were magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> These days, there are a lot of managers who seem to me to try and become the players' friends. Mm. Yes. And that's because the players have more power now. Yes. The old relationship where the players knew that the manager was on their side, but they were still a bit frightened of them. Mm. I can remember watching Nigel Pearson, who was also quite a successful manager at Leicester. Mm. Nigel Pearson had the air of an old-fashioned policeman. Yeah. He knew. I can't mess with this guy. Whereas when we won the league, I can remember Christian Fuchs Mm. rushing in on a press conference with Ranieri Mm. and spraying champagne all over him. Now, they would never, ever have tried that with Nigel Pearson. He would have probably nutted them.
2: I remember with Nigel Pearson once, I said something and he must have misheard it because there was a little silence and that was the longest silence I've ever known. I thought, oh God, what have I said? He just raised an eyebrow. But I must just tell you what frightened me about Jock Wallace, because he's just reminded me. Because <laughs> he said, before we start, before we fucking start, the idea that I'm a hard manager is a load of rubbish. There's only two types of men I don't like, and that's cowards and lazy bastards. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Fucking hell, I I ticked both of those boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> but oh he was, he was lovely.
1: There's another occasion where apparently Jock was berating them after a game, and Jock had obviously certain players whom he loved for whatever reason. Yeah. And Les had a fullback called Tom Williams. Tom was one of Jock's favorite players. Yeah. And at one point Jock was berating them and said Because Jock fought in the Korean War and in the jungle.
2: That was what he was referring to when he said he'd killed people. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's correct. And Jock said, you lot, you're all effing cowards. He said, there's only one of you I'd take into the jungle with me. (laughs) And that's Tam. And Tom, in his very downbeat Lesterway, said, well, I wouldn't fucking go. (laughs) Let
0: me draw a distinction between passion and anger, because there has to be a difference. And I'm just wondering whether what we see in society at large Mm. is the idea of road rage, which can manifest itself in all different ways, not just road, but rage in general. I find myself much more willing to confront people in every walk of life who've upset me... Mm than I ever used to do. Mm. And I'm just wondering whether this must spread into football, football interacts with society, mm. a wider sense of rage. There's a horrible thing when you turn on your computer in the morning, I don't demean anybody, I won't say who it is because I don't know, but there are various bits of news and with photographs and, and captions comes up and the captions are always written in this bizarre way of tabloides, of everybody is furious, yeah. Now, I'm not convinced that this has been going on all my life. I think this is a relatively modern phenomenon. Yeah. Where's it come from? Can we relate it to behaviour within football? I do think we can.
2: I know what you're talking about. Probably the most prevalent word in the English language when I was growing up was and or but. Now it's hate. Everything's yeah. hate. And I think it does relate to football. Now, when I was a lad, and I'm trying not to sound too much like those people in the Monty Python sketch. But when I was a lad, you supported a football team. You didn't have to hate their closest Mm. rivals. Mm. I would watch Dundee one week. The following week I'd watch, because I couldn't afford to pay to go see Dundee United, but I'd go in, sneak in for the last half hour when it was free, and I'd watch Dundee United. I wouldn't think I was being a traitor to my club by going into Tanadise. When I first came to Manchester in the 1960s, I'd stand on the Kippax one week and at the scoreboard end at Old Trafford the next. OK, I didn't support either of those clubs, but my father-in-law at the time was a Man United fan, but he wouldn't think he was being a traitor when he went to watch City. And he would talk about City as if they were, I wouldn't say a second favourite club, but he didn't spit when he uttered the name. He was interested in City. The Londoner would wake up on a Saturday morning, it would be a lovely day, I go to a match. Now, I wonder who Fulham are playing. I wonder who Arsenal are playing. I wonder who West Ham are playing. And we choose the most attractive visitors and then go to that match. Now, I've met people who are Arsenal supporters or Tottenham supporters because it applies equally to people of all creeds. But the result that matters most to them is how their rivals have got on and that it's got to be a defeat and, if possible, a humiliating one. And I think that's a difference which mirrors society.
1: I have only two things to say, and they are, I can't stand people who are intolerant, and I've told you a million times <laughs> <to exaggerate. laughs>
0: What are you doing for voting a football team if you don't like intolerance? Yeah, stuff? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that generally true, that there is a... Again, I think it's probably John's bugbear. I mean, it, it's television. Television we see, uh, I don't know, in question time, It's fair enough that we've got past the deference of the 1950s. Quite, absolutely, I agree. But politicians are are up there to be as Aunt Sally. Sometimes they deserve it. I couldn't agree more. But nothing stops people venting their rage Hmm. at whatever's happened to them at somebody else sitting on a platform. And I find that quite odd and peculiar. And it's been stoked by politicians. I don't need to mention the names. We know who they are. You know, Brexit was the classic example of Brexit debate made everybody angry. When you listen to any questions, as I've always done on Radio 4 at 8 o'clock on Friday night, everybody used to applaud the end of the speech by whichever party. During the Brexit debate, it was quite clear, even if you're listening on the radio, that half the audience was applauding one speech and half the audience was applauding the other. Mm -hmm. And there was a general sense of outrage of the one to the other when the other person was expressing their view. So something's happened to society that's changed us from being the tolerant nation we want. Colin, if what you're saying
2: is that hate multiplied during the Brexit debate, it's very tempting to say so. I would have to say I think that's simplistic. And I would give anecdotal evidence of my Twitter feed where right-wing people are capable of expressing themselves in a much more civilised way than those of the left. And I'm neither right, I'm either or both. You know, I read the New Statesman and the Spectator with equal relish and equal respect. But I have noticed this, that the language of the left is much more undignified The spelling is worse.
1: Well, I have to look at a lot of Gary Lineker's feed, and I have to say that would not be reflected Ah, in some of the stuff that comes to him, including those who absolutely, despite the fact the name appears all over the place, cannot spell his name correctly. (laughs) It's quite uncanny. Here's a man who's been on television. His name is displayed regularly. Yeah, absolutely regularly. We get requests, will you do this? gary l-i-n-e-k-a-r yeah, yeah and i get quite cross about this and write back and say it would be better if you're trying to get someone to do you a favor if you took the bother to spell his name correctly mm. and they say things like oh sorry for the typo it's <laughs> not actually a typo it's, a it's typo. you haven't taken the trouble to
0: spell the name correctly. Yeah.
1: Now you've got me on yeah, a rant. Yeah.
0: Let me drag this conversation which has got like tangled up like a duvet in sheets <laughs> at the bottom of the bed and pull it back up again. Can we assume then that, that, that passion in football, by and large, is actually a good thing? That passion is the driving force behind football, crowd behaviour and so on. It's when it spills from passion to anger to hatred and all the rest of it that we've been talking about, that's when it's no longer passion. Mm -hmm. It's become something different. Passion drives us all through life and through football. Passion is really important. It's what generates a sense of being alive as a human being. Mm. There's terrible silence coming from the other two. I'm just worried that I've gone beyond the legal limits.
1: It's not quite as simplistic as that. There's factors like maturity, being able to keep calm, There are moments to be passionate. Mm. There are also moments that you need calm judgment. Mm. People have often asked me about my job in terms of when I was an agent for players and later on broadcaster, what have you got to be? Mm. You've got to have a degree of empathy Mm. with the guy. You've got to understand why he's reacted, why he is. At the same time, you've also got to be able to say, on this one, you're wrong, Mm. and you've got to hold the authority. I often had to say to the parents of a player, Mm listen, you're biased, you're meant to be biased, and I respect your passion and the fact that you're biased on the player's behalf. I'm also slightly biased, but also I'm no good to you. If I just echo and say, yeah, yeah, of course you were right, the referee was rotten to send you off, or the manager, you know, the number of times I had players come in and say, the manager's got it in for me, Mm. and you'd say, Really? Why do you think that is? I don't know. He's just got it in for me. Mm. And this wouldn't have had anything to do with you turning up for training twice last week. And actually, Mm. if we're fair, you didn't play that well on Saturday, did you? No, we still got it in for me. Mm. And you have to talk them out of that and rationalise them out of that. Whereas I accept that they go home and they get pretty unconditional support. That's part of being a parent, isn't it? But you also, even as a parent, you at times have to say you're wrong on this. You know, it's not right. I always felt with the relationship between Martin O'Neill and John Robertson that John Robertson have the authority to say to Martin O'Neill, when a manager walks into a dressing room, I accept they have to have this feeling about them that they walk on water because they've got to tell a rubbishy player that actually he is a good player. And they've got to convince him of that. But at the same time, there has to be a coach there or someone there to say to the manager, you're not always right. And I have the feeling that John Robertson was able to do that with Martin O'Neill. I thought it was because he was undoubtedly a better player than Martin. But when I talked to Martin about this, he said, John Robertson, he felt had an intelligence and an ability to understand the game and the world in such a way that Martin would think about decisions he had taken and so on. You know, Shankly had that, but he had Paisley in the boot room behind him. Ferguson recycled, I think, over a period of time, Mm. his second-in-command. The second-in-command is very important to play. Jimmy Bloomfield was a great coach and a great manager, but he never trusted anyone Mm. sufficiently. He never let them in. Bloomfield did everything. And, of course, what happened in the end, and I think this happened to a sense with Rogers, that if the manager does everything, they run out of time. I've had an occasion where I've been doing a job where I've reached a situation where I've said, I've said this before, I'm now repeating a message to people. I think it's time now to move on. You've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them in the Kenny Rogers song. Mm. It's not a bad motto in terms of, managers and so on, that some of them who are absolutely brilliant have an effect for a time. But after, say, three or four years, they run out of time. And I think Mm -hmm. what's happened recently is these managers have run out of time more quickly.
2: So what you're basically saying is that Kenny Rogers is better than Brendan Rogers.
0: (laughs) As a a manager, I'm sure he is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Leeds have just appointed him, incidentally, but only just found out that he was dead.
0: (laughs) One final question for the two of you. What do you make of the fact when players and managers move across town? I mean, I'll go to John because of the cloth thing. You know, managers get very passionate about their club. Then they're fired or they leave to go to a better club. They go to another club and become very passionate about that club. Now, does that in any way diminish the sincerity of that passion? The passion is not for the club. It's for the club they're at at that particular moment.
1: I think the best example I can give for that is a man who is actually in television. He was asked to appear before an inquiry as to who got the Football League rights or the Premier League rights or what have you it was a good thing or a bad thing. And he gave evidence on one occasion. And the counsel said to him after that, but Mr. So-and-so, I shan't name him. Three years ago, you said exactly the opposite. And he said, yeah, but I was working for the other people <laughs> yeah. then, with a completely straight face. This is an argument, isn't it? It goes into all yes. so. What is fair and balanced and impartial and what is just... For the sake of it, giving one side as much say as the other. What is the truth is what we're seeking. And we need people. We need the press. We need the fourth estate, as it were, to point out more than ever that the truth is what is important. The facts are important. This has become difficult on Twitter and all this social media because people state opinion and newspapers now are not newspapers as such. Quite often... The front pages are actually opinion pieces. And it's just opinion and, and difference in opinion. We're way off football here. But as the relationship with football, they are transitory. Players are transitory. The only thing that is permanent, in a way, at a club are the fans. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I got booed when I left the Telegraph for the
0: Times. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't go back to the Telegraph, is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> really will let you know in no certain terms you shouldn't have done it but that is the point isn't it that the players you know Sol campbell mm. you can't do that and expect fans mm. who do not move across town yeah. for a better wage to appreciate the fact that that's what you've done yeah. you don't well, i, know, you, but I th- get the but
2: i still think they went too far in chanting there's only one yeah. henry winter but anyway that's that's.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right gents thank you passion has been the bedrock of our existence the passion of, has been the bedrock of our support of our teams. And I'm sure it's true for our listeners too. And the reason people listen to this is not just to hear the names that they grew up with, but also to share that sense of an attitude to football that comes from growing up at the time we grew up and watching the football that we watched when we were growing up. And it's those fans we want to listen to. And everybody out there can let us know, because we read all the letters that come in, all eight of them, and we want you to write to football ruin my life at gmail.com. That's football ruin my life, all one word, football ruin my life at gmail.com. So thank you very much to John Holmes. Thank you very much to Paddy Barkley. See you all next time on football ruin my life.
2: It's uh, Paul Kobrak, I feel sorry for. Edit that. Edit that. Sports Social Podcast Network.